1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you, and you can turn there to page 1014. 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1. And in a moment, we are going to read verses 17 through 21. The title of our message this morning is The Cross-Shaped Life, from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 through 21. Let's read there together. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we humbly thank you for gathering us here this morning. We could be a million other places. But I hope that you will help us realize that we are not here by accident. We are needy, we are overwhelmed, we are broken, we are distracted. You are our only hope. So Father, we pray that you would help your people today. And as you help us, Father, we pray, we we beg of you to bring any who are here today without Christ into our fold to the praise and glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was 11.20 in the morning on Sunday, June the 18th, 1944. The city of London was under attack. Germany's aerial invasion was devastating. It was relentless, and the people of God were meeting And it was at this point that 45-year-old Martin Lloyd-Jones stood before his people at Westminster Chapel. They could hear the planes getting closer, but Lloyd-Jones persisted, and he began his pastoral prayer. But the sirens and the planes grew too loud, and he had to pause, and they waited, and they waited, and the bomb fell. It wasn't a direct hit, but it was close enough that debris fell from the ceiling. The church's structure was cracked. And after a few moments, Lloyd-Jones continued his pastoral prayer. And when he concluded his prayer, many in the congregation moved around, found a safer spot to be, and a deacon moved up to the pulpit, wiped the debris off the pulpit, and Lloyd-Jones began preaching. The ground was shaking outside, the sirens were going off, there had to have been this palpable fear among everyone, and yet the people of God needed to hear from the Word of God. His text for the day was actually Jude verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I think of that scene every time I read 1 Peter. Every time. I see Peter not so much as that younger disciple who at times can be a bit abrasive, perhaps a bit forthright. When I read 1 Peter, I think of an older, wiser pastor, a guy who has the scars to prove he's been walking with Jesus. Maybe some of his rough edges are a bit smoother when we read his words here. I think we sense a pastoral heart to Peter in this text. One thing is clear about Peter. He knows that the sirens are going off, so to speak. The ground is shaking. The tenor and intensity of the opposition is mounting its approach. We might even say that Peter has a wartime posture. He tells these brothers and sisters in verse 6 that they are grieved by various trials. He, he mentions it in some way in every chapter. In chapter 4, this wartime posture is evident because he's going to say, Beloved, don't even be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you as though something strange were happening. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when he is revealed. So, beloved, Peter knows, he knows that externally the opposition, the pressure, the bombs are falling, and he knows God's people need a word. And boy, do we have a word here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, as Malachi mentioned earlier, every week we are walking through 1 Peter, verse by verse. We're so grateful that you're here if you're a first-time visitor. We hope you'll come back. Some among our flock can feel the ground shaking around their lives. The trials are coming. The sirens are going off. And you know it. All of us, in a sense, know the cultural and political and personal tragedies of our lives seem, at least to me, to be creeping in on us. And you and I need a word from God. Thus, we have our text today. Verses 17 through 21, which, interestingly enough to me, in Greek is just one long sentence, but five verses in our English Bibles. And it's a continuation of what we've already seen. It seems to me that time and time again, the apostles write with what we might call a gospel grammar. It seems like they oftentimes begin by devoting their attention to what God has done and what God has promised to do for us. And then they turn their attention to what God is doing in us and through us and how we respond to that in faith and hope and love. As we've seen already, the first 12 verses of chapter 1, the apostle writes in what we might just simply call an indicative mood. That is, he speaks with statements of fact. You are God's elect. You have been born again. You have a living hope. You have an eternal inheritance. God is sovereign, and he is keeping you by his power. You will be completely saved at Jesus' return. 
Last week, Dan showed us, beginning in verse 13, the gospel grammar sort of changes. He speaks now in the imperative mood. He begins giving commands. And as Dan last week helped us so well to see, there are two imperatives that precede the one in our text today. Do you see in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there it is. Set your hope. Some of your translations say, fix your hope. Verse 15 is the second one. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. You can't compartmentalize holiness. It must be pervasive throughout all of your life and existence. Now, friends, let's be honest. Are you really surprised that an apostle tells Christians to hope in God and live in holiness? Doesn't this sound very Christianly? Isn't this this the sort of thing you are expecting to hear in church? I mean, that's what I expect to hear when I come to church. Hope in God. Live a holy life. I need to hear that. And I expect to hear that. However, I think perhaps the imperative that's in the text we've already read, our text today, we might be at least, at least at first, surprised that we're told to conduct ourselves in a certain way. Did you catch it there in verse 17, our imperative? And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here it is, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Hope in God, live in holiness, conduct yourselves in fear. So that is our big idea today. If you're a note taker, maybe you want to write that down. We must live out the time of this sojourning life in reverential fear. You can say that however you want, write that down however you want, but that is the essence of what our text is about today. We live out this exiled life in reverential fear of God. We have to wrap our arms around what this means. Peter's going to give us three reasons why. Three reasons why we should conduct, pattern our lives, live our lives in this reverential fear of God. But I think it might be important today. Before we look at those three reasons why we should have this reverential fear, I think we first need to understand what this word fear means. Fear seems to be quite elastic today and how it's applied. Maybe you think of that, when you hear the word fear, maybe you think of that long list of never-ending phobias that exist today. I didn't have a lot of time to look into it, but one particular website I saw had a list of the top 100 phobias people have. And because I probably just piqued your curiosity, number one is arachnophobia. I find that fascinating, that image bearers of God who can squish a bug under our feet are so terrified, fearful of spiders. There was a fear, by the way, that I wasn't actually aware of until I looked at that list. It's called nomophobia. Anybody heard of this one? Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much. It's the fear of being without your cell phone. Now, some of you are looking for your cell phone right now because I said that. Lord, have mercy on your image bearers. The fear of being without your cell phone. 
all kinds of fears out there. Or maybe you think of that television show, Fear Factor, that bizarre show which first appeared in 2001 and has had several runs on several different television shows. And on this show, at least according to Wikipedia, contestants compete for money, of course, by drinking obscure potions, jumping off of this, jumping into that, some terrifying ordeal, some escape of this or that, and some very questionable situations that they are put in. Because the word, in my opinion, at least in our day, seems a bit loose, we need to make sure we, who are the people of God, are reading this word fear rightly. What does this mean to fear God? Is that right? Sounds, sounds right to be holy. Sounds right to set my hope in God. But fear him? What in the world does this mean? Well, to get to an answer quickly, I think we can first say this. What does Peter mean by fearing God? Well, let's make sense of it. He uses the word four times. The first is in our text, verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The third usage is in 1 Peter 3, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you are her children, if you do good, listen carefully, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then the last occurrence in 1 Peter is chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So, of all the things we could say about what Peter has to say about fear, we can say this. Writing to Christians, Peter says clearly that believers fear God, and he explicitly says, we do not fear man. Fear is a vertical posture toward God, and we do not have this horizontal, man-to-man sort of fear. We honor the emperor, we honor all people, we love the brotherhood, we fear God. That's what Peter says about fear. What does Jesus say about fear? He had a lot to say about it. And so if you have your Bible, maybe hold your place in 1 Peter and take a left and go back to Matthew chapter 10. Join me there if you don't mind. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, go to page 815. And let's look at what Jesus has to say about fear. So for Peter, honor everyone, fear God. What does Jesus have to say? Matthew chapter 10. Time does not permit us to read every bit of this, but we need to read enough of it to make sense of it. Verse 5, Jesus is sending out his apostles, and he gives very, very explicit instructions for them. Notice verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, go down to verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, the children, or and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Notice this next phrase. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Verse 28, listen carefully. Let this fall on you, brothers and sisters. Do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We could say much, much more about this massive text. But I just wonder, and I don't want to read too much into this. I don't want to make my New Testament scholar friend in the room nervous when I say this. But I just wonder if maybe Peter, years later, when he's writing to, writing to the beloved exiles, I wonder if he remembers Jesus saying all of that as he's writing to them. Because they're saying the same thing. We fear God. We don't fear man. They're going to deliver you over to the courts. They're going to flog you in the synagogue. They're going to devastate your families. Families will be torn apart. You'll be dragged before governors. Do not fear them. Even if they kill you and you know that your death is moments away, don't fear them. I mean, that's a pretty significant thing to kill someone. It's a pretty significant thing to know you're about to be killed. Don't even fear in that moment. Fear the maker of heaven and earth. Fear the one who made you. Fear the one who holds your life in your hands. Fear the one who has your eternal life and your eternal destiny in his hands. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is weighty here. We cannot misplace our fears. Fear is for God alone, for the believer It's not for man. So this much is clear, brothers and sisters. There should be a clear and identifiable fear in our lives for our God. And it should impact our conduct 
Because that's what Peter's driving at, right? Live your sojourning life in reverential fear. Conduct yourselves in such a way that it is reverential fear. Now, it's at this point that we could do a very exhaustive word study. We could look at 200 verses or so about how fear is used all over the place. We don't have time for that. However, we can look to a trusted friend, Martin Luther, and understand or at least lean into what he had to say about fear, because we know we're supposed to fear God, but what is fear? How should I understand that? Certainly not fear factor nonsense, or certainly not a list of long phobias. Martin Luther struggled mightily with what it meant to fear God. So he made a distinction between two types of fear. And I think this is very helpful for us, very practical. There's one kind of fear called servile fear. And this is the kind of fear that a prisoner might have in a torture chamber. He's afraid of the jailer. He's afraid of the tormentor. He's afraid of the executioner. It's dreadful anxiety of the clear and present danger of the one who is master over you. You are frightened because this person has the power to crush you. This is the sort of fear that drives you away from someone. That's not the kind of fear God's people have of our God. Instead, we have what Luther called a filial fear from this Latin language of family. It refers ideally to the kind of fear that a son or a daughter has for the father. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has tremendous respect, admiration, reverence, awe, and love for the father or mother who so dearly loves them and protects them. This child wants to please his mother or father. This is not the fear and anxiety of being tormented, of being tortured. That's not the kind of fear Peter wants these believers to have. Instead, it's the kind of reverential fear that God is our father. And we don't want to disappoint or bring dissatisfaction or displeasure toward him. I think this distinction is helpful because it seems to me the basic meaning of that great verse in Deuteronomy that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is that simply this, as we fear the Lord, we grow in wisdom and how to conduct our lives how to please our Father, and we keep that ever before us. My daily life is filled with conduct, with activity, with desires, with actions, with people that I am relating to. And this wisdom that I have of God as I love him as my Father compels me to live in such a way. Now, before we move on, brothers and sisters, we have to remind ourselves of something If you're here today without Christ, or dear Christian, if if dear friends of yours or loved ones don't know Christ, you need to be reminded that those without Christ don't fear God. They have zero fear of God, and they should. They don't stand in reverential awe of Almighty God, and they should Hear the devastating words of Psalm 36 this morning. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. 
The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Dear friends, if you are here today without Christ, you don't fear God and you have every reason that you need to be fearing him. Do you see, friend, you don't stand in awe of God without Christ. You don't have a reverential awe of him. In fact, you have a very low view of God. You are trusting in your own strength, but deep down, friend, you know you are powerless. You are trusting in your own intellectual capabilities, but deep down, you know it, you're ignorant. You are trusting in your own morality, but the testimony of your life, the biography of your life, is one colossal moral failure after another. If you are here today without Christ, hear sacred scripture this morning. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But also hear that this living God welcomes you, beckons you, summons you to come to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. What way? The way of not thinking about God. Not revering God. Forsake that, dear friends. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, dear friend, if you're here today without Christ, I, I, pray, I beg you to turn to him today. So, dear Christians, we can say this, at least this much, about fear. It's, it acts as a preservative. We don't want to run away from God. We don't want to live presumptuously. We don't want to live recklessly. We possess and live by a reverential fear and love for our God. But why? Why do we do this? Peter gives us three reasons And I hope you'll notice them with me. Why should we conduct ourselves in reverential fear? Notice with me the first reason. Look at verse 17 again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So dear friends, the reason why our sojourning life is lived in reverential fear is because our God judges impartially. Our God judges impartially. You know, really, the epistles preach themselves. This this makes sense to us. We don't have to do gymnastics here to figure out what Peter is trying to say here. In our culture, we have fashioned a God of our own creation who doesn't pass judgment. Or if he does do any judging at all, it's only for the real bad things other people do. The God in our culture, it seems, at least from my vantage point, is not one who would dare pass judgment on our daily lives or our authenticity, or he would never be pushing or demanding with us. But the God of the Bible is unlike this cultural manifestation that's so often talked about these days. He does judge, listen carefully, because he is the judge. He's the only judge whose verdicts are eternal. And strikingly, we who are his people call upon the judge of the universe as father. This should should rock you back on your feet for a moment. The judge of all things 
welcomes you to greet him as Father. And of course, Jesus taught us to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. In Galatians 4, we are told, because we are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we cry, what, friends? Abba, Father. In Romans 8, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in this weird sort of kind of fear, not the reverential kind. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, it's important for us to make this understanding very clear. Our God as Father, when we refer to him as Father, he doesn't have a different standard than God who is judge. In other words, we can't say, God as judge has all these rules I must follow, but when I refer to him as Father, he'll let me slide. Maybe he won't be as strict. Maybe it's a different set of rules. He loves me as Father. It's this daddy-son sort of relationship, but as judge, man, he's harsh. We can't make this sort of dichotomy in our minds that God is in some way as judge and father opposed to his own will and perfection. Peter is clear, brothers and sisters, if you have today an intimate relationship with God, if you call on him as father, then you must also know that you are talking to one who knows your life impartially. He knows every, every aspect of who you are, every work you do, every, every aspect of your conduct, the thoughts that lead to your conduct, the actual conduct, and what you think about after you've done this conduct. To put it this way, the more the Christian knows God intimately, the more he will have or she will have this reverential fear. This is the sort of fear that drives us to God. And the more we fear him, the more we are afraid of disappointing him. His judgment is impartial. Do you remember that lengthy text we just read in Matthew 10? Do you remember when Jesus said this? Have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's the language of impartiality. This is the judge who has all of the data. There's not this hidden component of the case that's out there that he just needs and it would help him make his judgment. He has seeing eyes. Dear friends, you stand naked before the God of the universe. There's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide, there's no self-justification, there's nowhere to run. He sees us. This literally says without receiving the face. In other words, God's judgment is not restricted by the outward appearance we give him of our actions. Whatever face or mask we might use to hide behind to fool others doesn't hinder our God. It's complete transparency. Complete transparency. God is concerned with individual actions. Make no mistake about it. But he is also very much concerned with the heart that fuels all of our actions. And he judges all of it impartially. There's no hiding. You are completely exposed. Now, scholars question whether this impartial judging that's being talked about here is a reference to the discipline God gives us in this life as we sin and move away from him, or is this a reference toward future judgment? There, there's sort of this 
back and forth among the commentaries, but it seems that most, in fact, almost all of them see this is a reference to the final judgment. And you need to understand that. All of us need to understand this. There is coming a day when we will give an account. Hear hear Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he alludes to it as well. Peter tells us that judgment begins where, brothers? At the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Dear friends, the good news of this future judgment is that evil has an expiration date. Do you need to hear that today? The evil in our world has an expiration date. One day it will stop. And and I need to hear that. And I know you need to hear that as well. One day King Jesus will make all things right. But you're not exempt from standing before him. And this should cause in you a reverential awe of your God. This should compel you to live your life in a certain way, even when the bombs are falling, even when the ground is shaking. What do we make of this? What, this, this, this almost makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, it seems like every week when preachers are preaching to us from this First Peter, everybody refers to Shriner, so I'm going to refer to him as well. I think we ought to send him an honorarium, by the way. Uh, we've referred to him so much. Here's what, here's what Tom Schreiner says, and I, I find this very helpful. And I quote him, the fear of judgment still plays a role in the Christian life. Paul himself realized that he would be damned if he did not live the message proclaimed to others. Such a recognition inspires him to live faithfully. It does not paralyze him with fear. Paul himself taught that genuine faith always manifests itself in works, end quote. So here's the takeaway, brothers and sisters. Christians living in this sojourning life have a reverential fear in our conduct because one day the Bruce Almighty scene's going to happen, right? The filing cabinet is coming open and everything is exposed. Our only hope is Christ. But our only hope in Christ does not preclude us for living for him in our conduct. Do you sense in your life, brothers and sisters, an abiding reverential fear that one day you will stand before your maker? This should should land heavy on you. Your life matters. Your conduct matters. Nothing is hidden. Everything will be exposed. He knows you. You can't hide from him. You can't compartmentalize this. You're barren. Thanks be to God for Christ, right? Peter gives a second reason why we live reverential awes, in a reverential awe. Number two, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the second reason why, friends, we live lives of reverential fear is because you have been redeemed by the death of Jesus. You have been redeemed by his blood. If you are here today without Christ, you need to understand 
That Peter is as much concerned that you have the right answer to how we can be redeemed as much as you know the wrong answers to how we can be redeemed. We are not redeemed from the empty ways inherited from our forefathers. All of us in some way understand what, what this inheritance language means. If someone dies and you inherit a fortune or someone leaves you, that sounds nice, right? Someone leaves you a car or a box of coins, or the family piano, or the dog, whatever it might be. You understand this idea of inheritance. Humanity, if you will, in our natural state, we, we have our own ways of thinking of things. We have our own ways of, of coming up with explanations for things. And essentially, this is the vanity of Ecclesiastes. All of our best summaries, all of our best explanations is futile. It's futility. It's empty, it's lacking, it's vain, it's powerless to save. We can't come up with a solution to our greatest problem. By the way, have you ever noticed, at least this is true in my own life, whenever I am tempted to sin, every single time, I am always tempted to revert back to the things I once looked to for salvation. Every time. Every time I I sense the pressure of temptation, I just almost feel the drag within me, the old nature, trying to drag me back to all of those wells, if you will, where I found pleasure, where I found answers, where I thought I had it right. That, those are the sources of my salvation. And when I'm tempted, I can just feel it, feel the drag. And what this is telling me is that when I hold that up to the light, the penetrating, beautiful, perfect light of who God is, and I look through it, I see this is futile. This is vain. This won't satisfy. I need to get rid of this. I've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I can't find help in these things. Don't you remember Peter in Acts 3? I don't have silver and gold to offer you. (laughs) I do have something I can offer you. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. So if you're here today without Christ, dear friends, you will not be saved from anything man can come up with, even the good traditions we inherit from our forefathers. Secondly, you can't be redeemed by silver and gold. Possessions can't do it. If if all of humanity could mine all of the gold and silver on earth and place it before God, it, it would not satisfy his wrath for one of us, let alone all of us. Silver and gold simply won't do it. But what will, friends? It's the text we had read to us at the beginning of the, the, our time together today. It's the precious blood of Jesus. It harkens us back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? The liberation of Israel from Egypt. This means we were enslaved. We were in bondage to sin and death. And God redeems us from the futile, empty ways of that kind of living Peter understands that anything, even good things, that we try to put forth, money, even the best money, which will perish and is corruptible, or the best of human traditions, all of these are insufficient saviors. We need the blood of Christ. That means, dear friends, if you need to be redeemed today, you cannot be redeemed by something, but by someone, the Lamb. The lamb who substituted himself. The lamb who was punished. This death is penal. It's precious blood. Without a blemish or spot. His perfect life, his perfect death 
is acceptable to our God who judges impartially. And make sure you don't miss this. Jesus himself had to endure God's impartial judgment when he died for you. You know, I was recently, um, a friend of, on Facebook, his daughter got her driver's license. And there she is, the sun's on her face, big, beautiful blue eyes, big, pretty smile. It's just obvious this young lady is ecstatic. She's holding up her driver's license. He takes her picture. And I know I'm happy. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for her. But you want to know something 10 years from now, six months from now? I bet they don't still take those pictures. I I bet she doesn't take that picture every year. Look at my driver's license. Look at what I have now. And I think sometimes we kind of do that in the Christian life. I mean, we have this glow about us. Look look what I have. Look, Look at this. Everybody look. Look at what I have. And over time, it gets lost in our purse somewhere. We only use it when we're in trouble. And sometimes I wonder if we do that to the blood of Jesus. Have we in some way just minimized the great cost it took to get us out of bondage? Friends, when we recapture the beauty of what Christ has done for us, it causes us to live in reverential awe of God. He's an impartial judge. He's redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. And the third reason, and I'll hurry, we are living lives of reverential fear because our salvation is God's eternal plan. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Friends, we could spend weeks on, I mean, there's just been weeks here. In fact, I was so, I laughed out loud when I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this. He gives a few paragraphs of explanation about what this whole foreknowledge business is, and then he makes a statement. For those who wish further explanation, consult the institutes. You may not think that's funny. I think it was hilarious. Here, here's this brilliant scholar who's saying commentaries don't have the space for the theological work that these verses need, nor do we have time today to wrestle with all that is listed in these verses. But we can say this. We can say this very much. God the Father knew and loved God the Son before the universe was created. In other words, the one who shed his blood to pay our ransom for our rescue from our futile living was no ordinary man. And the plan of God to save us was not an afterthought of creation. God knew Christ, and he knew this plan from all eternity. This should blow you away. This should absolutely blow us away, that the death of Christ was not a panicked emergency plan B. God never wondered, what in the world am I going to do with these people now? Redemption through the death of Jesus was a plan made in eternity past, but demonstrated in real time through the incarnation, which we'll be celebrating soon at Christmas. Jesus entered, or pardon me, he existed before the creation in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. He was invisible to us, so to speak, but he has come into us or come into our existence 
to live a perfect life and to die a substitutionary death, to receive into glory that which is his, all authority at the Father's right hand. He was born to die. He said so explicitly, and he died to ransom us. God raised him from the dead, vindicated him, and this is our hope. The weight of this is just unmistakable, friends. Before the world existed, before you were even born, God knew that you would mock him, and yet he purposed to save you. God knew that you would belittle his word, and he purposed to save you. He knew that even after we became Christians, we would fail to live in godliness, and he still purposed to save us. He knew that when we lived or went through trials, when we questioned his love and care, he still purposed to save us. He knew about our lies, our drunkenness, our fits of rage, our immorality, our dark thoughts, every flirtation, every lust, every sin, every despairing moment. All of this was laid before him, and he purposed to save you anyway. When he knew that you would never in and of yourself choose him, he decided to choose you anyway. This should rock you. This should shock you. This is the love of God. None of us love this way. None of us. This should cause in us an awe-inspiring fear of our God. This is how we set our hope on God, and this is how we live in holiness. God loves like that. Calvin does say this. Quote, herein shines forth more fully the unspeakable goodness of God, that he anticipated our disease by the remedy of his grace. Hear that again. He anticipated your disease by the remedy of his grace. And why does he do this, friends? So that we would have God. If your understanding of salvation doesn't have God as our prize, then we need to reassess our understanding of salvation. We come to God and we have him. In fact, he says that in chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. There's a story of a boy who was playing with his friends. And they were getting into mischief. And as time went on, they were getting further and further into mischief. And this little boy began to refuse to do what everyone else was doing. And his friends began to ridicule him, make fun of him. They said to him, you're no fun, you're a coward, and so on. And one boy said to him, he's just afraid that if he does this, his father will hurt him. And the boy says, no, I'm not afraid of him hurting me. I'm just afraid if I do this, I will hurt my father. Dear friends, that is the sort of reverential fear that you and I must have as we seek to follow our Lord. It's longing to live under the sunshine of God's smile. It's the longing to love and be loved by our Father and to please him. I'm out of time, but I want to say three things really quickly. How do we do this, brothers and sisters? Number one, how do we live lives of reverential fear? Real quick, three suggestions. Number one, we do this evangelistically. Why? Because lost people don't have this fear of God. They, they simply don't. The people that we love without Christ, they don't have this. So we live lives of reverential fear in hopes that God will save them. So we do it evangelistically. Number two, we do it enthusiastically. And that means we simply enjoy God. We enjoy being loved by our Father. 
And then lastly, we do it ecclesially. In other words, friends, we do this within the safe confines and encouragement of the people of God. You want to live a life of reverential fear, you do it with other brothers and sisters. And we praise God together. And together, we set our hope in him, we pursue holiness, and we walk in reverential fear.